Welcome to Breaking Free Authentically, the podcast where we explore what redefining relationships looks like through a sex-positive lens. Let's kick shame and guilt to the curb and really start living a sexy, authentic life. I'm passionate about normalizing out-of-the-box ways of designing relationships. There's nothing quite like finding your tribe and experiencing the freedom of being completely yourself without judgment. I'm your host, Kareen Bedard, your sex-positive relationship designer, and I'm here to guide you in creating the relationship you desire, whether that is a more open one or simply a more empowered one. Join me every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to enjoy the newest episode. Good morning for those of you listening in the morning. I'm recording this in the evening, so I'm going to say good evening to those who are maybe on the other side of the world listening from over there. Welcome to episode seven. This is crazy. It's going by so fast. I can't believe that. Today's episode is a tough one. It was really, it's a tough one to put together because I realize that when you are talking about misconceptions and countering misconceptions and things like that, we really want to make sure that we are accurate and it's not just opinions that we're spouting. So I wanted to make sure I did my research and and really get the facts right and things like that. So it took me a while to do this podcast, these notes, and I hope that they're thorough and I wanted to do it in an interesting way as well. So today's topic is really about, well, I'm going to talk about monogamy and then what is ethical non-monogamy and and what's that spectrum and what's included in that. And then misconceptions of ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy is another, another term for it. So I think that it's going to help clear things up. What I want to do is just sort of set a foundation if you don't know much about the difference between monogamy or non-monogamy or all, all of that world, it's it's a lot. And so I really want to um, continue on from last week where we talked about sort of relationship myths and monogamous myths uh, and take that into misconceptions and possible myths of what people think about non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, which I like to call ethical non-monogamy, but it is an interchangeable term. So when we get back, we are going to tackle some of this. So stay tuned. Come back. Uh, this might, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be a heavy episode, but it's got a lot of information. And um, so buckle up again. And we're going to hit, hit the road, run in with this one. And hopefully it helps clear up some things. If you have questions about any of this, you know, you can always reach out to me. I would love that. You can join my Facebook group. And again, you can ask questions in there. I want to start hosting live uh, Q&A calls in that group. So if you're interested in being a part of that, that is a great opportunity to ask some of your questions. Okay, so without further ado, we will be right back. Please visit our website at breakingfreeauthentically.com. And subscribe to our mailing list so you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave a review on Podchaser by clicking the link at the top of the page. That would mean the world to me. Finally, I'd love to have you join our private Facebook community and oasis called Breaking Free to Be Authentically Me. All links will be in the show notes. Enjoy the show. 
Okay, we are back. We are ready to talk about monogamy, non-monogamy, and misconceptions. Okay, before we get into it, I really want to start by defining monogamy. Because I talk about it a lot, but I realize some people maybe don't quite realize what it is. So traditionally, it was one man and one woman united in a sexual slash emotional relationship for life. So one partner for life. Now, we as a culture are more accepting of what's called maybe serial monogamy. And this is more commonly what's practiced now. Um, Like I said, in our culture, people have emotional and sexual relationships with one person at a time, but not necessarily the same person for life. So that's a bit of a distinction. So monogamy in its original form was one person for life. Now it's more serial monogamy. I'm going to read a few definitions of... um, monogamy by phoebe phillips and she has a blog and a podcast called polyamoring and it's it's quite interesting she's she's kind of funny but she wanted to describe her versions of these terms and how she uses them and for me it's very similar how i use them so i thought i would read them to you because i thought they were well they were well written so when she says monogamy Uh, Well, she says monogamy, monoamory, and monogamish. She uses all of these terms. Um, She doesn't use these terms interchangeably, which is important. So here's what she usually means by them. Someone who's monogamous is one who only wishes to have a romantic, emotional, and or sexual relationship with one person with the goal of marriage. Okay, so she adds that with the goal of marriage, which is often talked about on the Relationship Escalator, which we'll have a podcast episode about that. But uh, so our culture does have monogamy as the goal being marriage and marriage forever, as we talked about last week. So she breaks that up with monoamory is similar, but without the implication that marriage is the goal, which I kind of like that. So that's a, the first time I've heard that monoamory. I like that. And then monogamish. So this is kind of like crossing over that non-monogamy territory. Um, but monogamish is someone who can see a little gray area in there. Perhaps they occasionally have another sexual partner or participate in group sex with their partner or participate in BDSM activities with another partner. There's a lot of room for interpretation in ish. So friends of mine um, have a blog called uh, The Monogamish Marriage, and they have a podcast as well. I'm not sure if they're still doing the podcast. I need to double check that. But um, yeah, so let's talk about, I don't think people realize that monogamy, there's really like four types of monogamy. And so when we talked about monogamish, we see that Hmm, there's variances in, you know, monogamy and what some people consider as part of their monogamy. So there's four types of monogamy, and we will go through these more in another episode. I don't want to take a lot of time today on this because there is a lot to get through. But the four types are sexual monogamy, emotional monogamy, social monogamy, and practical monogamy. So some people 
are sexually monogamous and they will not have sex with anybody else. Some will have sex with other people but are emotionally monogamous and they will never share the emotions with other people. That's their, no, that's their line. They don't cross that line. Some are socially monogamous, which means that they pretty much do everything socially together or like even if they go to family functions, it's together. They don't really do things as with other people on their own, like friends and stuff necessarily. So that is a form of of monogamy as well as a social monogamy. And then um, practical monogamy is, you know, the monogamy where you, you, a lot of nesting partners are practically monogamous and they, they uh, combine their bank accounts or they divide the chores up. They split up the roles in the home. So it's, really the practical sides of living and those they don't share those things with other people so their finances will always just be together even if they have other partners so there's different varieties it's important to think about that distinction so how monogamous are you and what areas are you monogamous in what are you more monogamous in are you allowed to have friendships with the opposite sex you know, are you less socially monogamous, but you're sexually, emotionally, and practically monogamous? So it's just kind of an interesting way to look at that and realize that there's sort of different even levels. Monogamy is kind of on a spectrum too. So that's that's kind of cool. So we'll talk about that more in another episode. Let's talk about monogamy in history. Was it always that way? Um, how do we how do we know? that and when did monogamy start and so um i just want to point out like when i was growing up the bible was like my book of how to live my life right and it was always interesting to me that polygyny was in the bible and even it was still in the new testament and so you've heard of polygamy we'll talk a little bit more about that but polygamy is marriage between more than one person, having more than one spouse. Um, And polygyny specifically refers to a man having more than one woman as a spouse. Okay, so um, also in the Bible, there were concubines. If you Song of Solomon, you know, like I think Solomon had like 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's a lot of women. That's a lot of women. So this is in the Bible. This was obviously part of the culture. So when did it become monogamous? Uh, When did it change? And one of the things that started to change was that, well, women, I think this, this happened for a long time, but women and children were property. And virginity, again, if we talk about virginity, was a very high commodity. So it was a way to keep track of your property uh, without genetic testing. So if you had just one spouse, then you would know who your children are and keep track of all that. So these are just some of the things. But what I would like to do is read a great article in um, The Modern. So I'll put the link in the show notes to the, um, the article, A Brief History of Monogamy from The Modern. And it's an online publication and that talks about modern intimacy through arts, science, and relationships. So check it out. It's actually a really good, um, 
really good publication. All right, here we go. It's written by the mod team, so it's not just one author. How common is shacking up one-on-one? It may seem like humans have been shacking up together since the dawn of time, but that hasn't necessarily always been the case. According to a paper published in 2012, the anthropological record shows that 85% of human societies have permitted polygamy or polyamory. And while today the concept of soulmates is very familiar to most, researchers still have a hard time understanding how monogamy started. Monogamy and Early Humans According to the New York Times, a 2011 paper showed that early humans, or hominids, began shifting towards monogamy about 3.5 million years ago. Though the species never evolved to be 100% monogamous, remember that earlier statistic? There are a few different theories as to why this shift happened. After all, at the base level, it doesn't seem like there would be an evolutionary advantage to monogamy. When a male mates with multiple females, wouldn't there be a higher success rate for producing offspring? Researcher Kit Opie of University College London, the the New York Times reported, surmises that monogamy in early primates meant that males were able to protect and nurture their children, which led to higher rates of survival and increased nourishment, which had an impact on human brain development further down the line. If we look at the dawn of civilization, the rise of monogamy is also linked to the rise of democracy and modern civilization. A paper published in 2012 says, Increased competition in polygamous cultures, specifically those in which one man takes several wives, leads to decreased gendered independence and increased household conflict. Monogamy, the paper says, results in the opposite. There's a positive statistical relationship between one-to-one couples and democratic equality, not just between the sexes, but among all citizens. What's natural? All this considered, some researchers aren't convinced that humans are naturally monogamous, or that they should be. As the BBC reports, there is a difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. Social monogamy involves a partnered pair living close together and typically parenting their offspring. These couples typically have sex with one another but they may not be 100% exclusive, unlike those that are sexually monogamous. The latter in humans and other species is considered actually pretty rare. So is it unnatural for humans to couple up for life? The jury is still out, but one thing that researchers can't quite quantify is the true emotional reasons why we as a species have come to favor monogamy more or less over the centuries. Evolutionary advantages may be one puzzle piece in the big picture, but love is something that can't always be analyzed to its full extent by an anthropologist. So I thought that was interesting. This gives a little different viewpoints there. Let's talk about ethical non-monogamy. In the book Designer Relationships, which is where I got these misconceptions that we're going to be talking about, they refer to designer relationships and consensual non-monogamy. 
I like to use the word ethical non-monogamy because that's important to me, but definitely ethical non-monogamy is consensual non-monogamy is a very important piece, okay? So in its most basic form, non-monogamy is is any relationship that involves more than two people. So where there's an outside or additional relationship um, where that's allowed. However, ethical is a very important qualifier that helps distinguish dynamics for the folks involved. Ethically non-monogamous relationships are ones in which all people involved have negotiated the terms of and enthusiastically consented to non-monogamy without feeling coerced into it. That's a really important part, explains Dr. Dulcinea Pitagora, New York City-based psychotherapist and sex therapist. Ethical non-monogamy, also known as ENM or CNM for uh, consensual non-monogamy, I like to call it an umbrella term, and I like to say that ethical non-monogamy is on a spectrum. So it includes everything from swinging to open relationships to polyamory, and we'll kind of talk about that spectrum. So let's look at some of the definitions. I'm going to, again, use... um, Phoebe Phillips definitions because I find that they're really, really well written and I agree with them. So let's go ahead. If we talk about swinger, what is a swinger? Or other words for swingers are lifestylers, people in the LS, LSers. Uh, So swingers and swinging. Swinging also falls under the umbrella, like I said, of ethical non-monogamy. Her definition of swingers are couples who engage in sexual relationships with other people, whether it be other individuals or other couples, purely for the sexual exploration and variety. They can form emotional bonds of friendship and sometimes even toe the line into polyamory if those bonds start strengthening. Individuals who identify as swingers that are not part of an established couple or group, uh, she would refer to them as unpartnered, which... You'll have heard the term uh, probably unicorn for an unpartnered uh, woman or a swinger woman or single woman, and that's a common term. And there's a lot of controversy around unicorns and unicorn hunting and all that, but we're not going to get into that today. So I'm going to say on one end of the spectrum, so like the very far left of the spectrum, if you're looking at it, would be like a strict swinger which has no emotional bonds with anybody, like a one-night stand even for them. Like some swingers will not play with, and we use the word play for sexual fun, sexual activity. Um, so they won't play with the same couple more than once just so that they don't create emotional bonds. So that's, again, a decision that a couple can make, and that depends on their form of monogamy. So in that situation, they would be sexually non-monogamous as as a swinger, but definitely emotionally monogamous. Okay, so that's the extreme swinger side. And then there's a spectrum, like we get closer and closer, you know, where we can have some emotional connections and things like that. So it just depends what that looks like for you. Okay, then the next term is open relationships. So an open relationship, a swinger is is a type of open relationship, Uh, polyamory is a type of an open relationship. But if we're just going to stick with open relationships, I like to think of that like friends with benefits. Um, Another umbrella term that include any type of relationship that does not limit any of its participants from seeking 
or being open to forming any other relationships, whether they are emotional, sexual, or otherwise. This, she she goes on to, to go a little bit further. She says, this is different from a closed relationship in that in a closed relationship, all participants, whether there are two or more, agree that there won't be any additional partners added to the mix beyond what's already there. So that would be the difference between closed and open relationships. So the open part is, you know, not limiting participants from seeking or being open to forming other relationships. And then closed polyamorous relationships can also be referred to as polyfidelity. And again, we're not going to go over these terms like into great detail. Um, But the next, so that's getting closer to that polyamory side. And polyamory is like the other side of the spectrum. It's where, when the existence of potential for multiple committed relationships is present. For some, that means emotional and sexual. For others, it can be emotional or sexual. While my default tends to be that polyamory is when there are multiple, more than casual relationships, I acknowledge that there are others who have one primary partner and multiple casual friends with benefits that consider themselves polyamorous. I'd consider that an open relationship, but be aware the overlap exists. And I would agree with her. I would be more likely to call a relationship with a friends with benefits more on the open relationship side than true polyamory. But again, it is used interchangeably a lot because it's not always well-defined and people don't always use the same definitions for the same words. So that's why I really want to clear this up, what I would be talking about as well as her. Another term is solo poly, and this is an individual who identifies as polyamorous, but who does not live with or co-mingle finances with any of their partners. Solo poly people tend to act as their own primary partner. So that's important. And then relationship anarchy also falls under the non-monogamy spectrum because it's an individual who defies labels and avoid social constructs around what relationships are supposed to look like. So relationship anarchists relationship anarchists tend to avoid making or accepting rules, agreements, or hierarchy, or with any other particular partner, nor do they prioritize any relationship over the other, whether it's romantic or platonic over the other. Okay. Uh, they may be living with a partner or not. So that's a, a big distinction. So if you have questions about that, you can ask me. Sorry, my chair is a little squeaky. You can ask me um, any of those if you want clarification. But hopefully that helps just to kind of give a baseline understanding of um, the different, you know, spectrums of of ethical non-monogamy. Okay, so let's get into the misconceptions about consensual non-monogamy as designer relationships, um, a guide to happy monogamy, positive polyamory, and optimistic relationships talks about. I used this book last week. I love this book. I use it a lot with my clients. 
And it, it's called designer relationships. I'm an elite relationship designer, and I really like the idea of designing a relationship that meets your needs and taking what works for you and what doesn't work for you and just using the parts that will create the best experience for you in your life, um, not necessarily what is most popular or accepted. So let's get into the misconceptions. Misconception number one, consensual non-monogamy threatens the institution of marriage. Well, conspiracy theories about destroying the institution of marriage for the sake of establishing a world government, these theories have been going around for years on lots of different things, but extreme supporters of this belief say that there's a conspiracy, and the conspiracy is is controlled by the advocates of marriage equality, the polyamorous movement, and advocates of sexual freedom. Another conspiracy theory is that the marriage equality movement, they're part of the gay mafia or the Muslim mafia, and they're afraid that it will give religions and cultures, such as Muslims, the upper hand. So they're very weary that there's this big agenda. Those extremists are out there, but even if their fears are true, it has no more relevance than arguing, really, that learning a foreign language is subversive and un-American, or un-Canadian for that matter. It's kind of ridiculous. There's no attack on culture just because you're learning a foreign language or you're doing something different. So we just have to be careful what we what we're saying, like this you know, the war against Christmas or the threatened to the institution of marriage is, is kind of a big, a big misconception. And it's not rooted in a lot of um, things that are really that weighty. Um, those cultures and religions that ad- adhere to polygyny. And so polygamy, like we said, was the marriage between more than one spouse Polygyny specifically is men married to more than one woman. And then, um, po, what's it called? I think I'll get to it. Polygyny. So let's talk about polygyny, which actually isn't about marriage equality at all. But ethical non-monogamy is not about polygyny at all. Okay, so it's a very clear distinction. It's about equality and consensual relationships. Okay, so this is, I'll get into the definitions here. Polygamy, like I said, is the general gender-neutral term for any marriage between two or more people. Between three or more people, sorry. Polygyny is a specific term used to describe a marriage that includes one husband and at least two wives. This is by far the most common and the most frequently legal form of polygamy. Polyandry is a specific term used to describe marriages between one wife and at least two husbands. And that is not something that we hear about very often. So people's minds go straight to polygyny, which is really, you know, rooted in the patriarchal system. And we'll talk about that later. So a group marriage is a blanket term for marriages that include multiple husbands as well as multiple wives. 
Polyamory is the practice of having multiple romantic relationships with all parties having full knowledge and granting full consent. It's not related to marriage, okay? So there's no, you know, trying to fight marriage or, or all that. It, it's really, it's not about marriage. Polyamory is about loving more than one. Uh, ethical non-monogamy is about including more than one person in your relationship. It doesn't have to affect marriage at all. Many people that are married are happily still married and they're polyamorous or swingers or whatever. So it's not an attack on marriage. It's not trying to, you know, ruin the institution of marriage. But um, there's nowhere in South or North America that actually allows polygamy, marriage between three or more. But now in Utah, it's actually no longer a criminal offense. And basically, it's like getting a parking ticket if you're caught. But like in some states, it's actually a criminal offense. You could get like 10 years in jail if you aren't divorced and you get married to someone else. Like it's crazy. But things are shifting. Um, so we'll see. But other reasons are that the divorce rates are climbing, but they also f uh, are finding that in actuality – they're declining for the younger generation, but the boomers are divorcing more. So you have to take a look at the statistics as well, right? So the younger generation that's adopting polyamory, polyamory and open relationships isn't necessarily divorcing more. So that was an interesting discovery. Uh, on a more individual level, it plays itself out in the very common assumption that opening up a relationship means that it is in trouble. So the marriage is in trouble if you're opening up a relationship. I mean, any relationship is in trouble if you want to open it up. Of course, that's got to be it, right? Um, and so that leads to phrases like, you're playing with fire, um, things like that, that are actually really common in therapists' office. Your choosing to be non-monogamous jeopardizes your marriage. Things like that are very widely held beliefs, and they're just not necessarily true because it misses the idea of what ethical non-monogamy is all about. So let's keep going. So um, like I said, I've heard this so often, but there is no data to support this. So it's much wiser as a therapist, for instance, to get curious and examine whether it is mutual, the specifics of what inspired them to open up, and the steps the couple might have been taking to keep their connection and safety with each other strong as they explored opening up their relationship, rather than just jumping to the conclusion that the reason their relationship isn't doing well is because they decided to open up. So I think that people actually miss the fact that it's relationships and it's like basic relationship um, things that affect a relationship. It's not just broken if you open up. So, I mean, anyways, I could go on, but let's go on to misconception number two. Consensually non-monogamous people are at higher risk for contracting STIs. This is an interesting one. Although increasing the number of sexual partners um, you have can obviously increase the risk. That's only, f um, that's not the only factor in the equation, you know, like it's not the only thing to look at. 
So like non-monogamists tend to use safer sex practices than most cheating or single monogamists. So that's interesting. That's worth looking at. It's part of the etiquette. Like if you're non-monogamous, you are expected to use safer sex practices. It's not accepted to just not use safer sex practices. Like it, that's considered rule, uh, rude or breaking the etiquette. So that's part of it. Uh, cheaters used condoms 27 to 35% less often for oral and anal than those in open relationships. And they had a 64% higher rate of using drugs and alcohol during these extracurricular encounters compared to non-monogamous. Uh, so that that's an interesting t- statistic. There are always risks involved in anything we do, such as driving cars, which is actually far riskier than unprotected sex, but we still do that. We don't think about it. We also don't assume, this is interesting, we also don't assume that we're being punished if we get into a car accident, like we often assume about someone getting an STI or getting pregnant. A lot of religious circles like, well, God's punishing you for having unprotected sex or God's punishing you for – but, like, we don't go, oh, you got in an accident. God's punishing you. Like, that's not a common misconception. You can see how the sexual shame of our culture falls into that. Education in schools, there's a lot of sex-negative attitudes which propagate this idea. And abstinence-only education – They're often taught that STIs are caused by a lack of morality and righteousness. Uh, I want to read a quote on page 60 of Designer Relationships. I thought this was interesting. Advocates of abstinence-only education are astute enough to couch their arguments in secular terms, but the idea that contracting an STI is punishment is implicit in their rhetoric about purity and virginity, especially in the comparisons that they make between sexually active teenagers, girls in particular, and dirty chocolate, used tape, chewed up gum, cups of spit, cups of spit, and roses with no petals. Like, these are terrible things. I remember thinking about, you know, If I had sex with someone before I was married, I was like, use tape and I wouldn't stick. And like I said last week, tape or sex is the glue that holds a relationship together or the tape that holds a relationship together. And so if it's used tape, it's not going to be as sticky and not going to keep you together. Well, these are very untrue analogies and they're harmful and they really affect as a woman, especially your, your self-worth and the way that you see yourself and sexual shame. So very unhealthy. Um, but that's, that's what the abstinence only movement is teaching really about, about, um, sexuality and especially women that the guys aren't, aren't being called like chewed up gum really. I mean, some, it depends what denominations. But yeah, this is, this is you know, the kind of thinking that, that we have. The long and short is that people will have sex regardless of the risks. A significant percentage of monogamous people will cheat 
and often abandon safer sex practices in the process. But non-monogamous folks tend to have way more open conversations about STIs and safer sex as well as getting regularly tested than monogamous folks. So it's not necessarily true. It is a misconception, but they're not looking at all the options because monogamous people often cheat and aren't using protection. Um, And then single monogamous people, they don't feel the need to use that. But as a community, the consensual non-monogamous community, the ethical non-monogamous community is very big on safer sex practices, STI testing, communication about your sexual health. That's like not something that's difficult to talk about in this world, but those aren't conversations that are often being had outside of this world. So definitely a misconception. It's not, not necessarily true. Okay. Misconception number three People who choose to be in alternative relationships are incapable of intimacy. I love this one because it's so blatantly false, so blatantly false, and it really doesn't look at everything. Um, I'm not trying to pick on conservative Christians, even though a lot of these misconceptions are rooted in religious, uh, relation, sorry, religious beliefs and programming. But like emotional intimacy is not necessarily the goal of Christian marriage in this case, in fact. So, like, this idea that alternative relationships are incapable of intimacy. I mean, monogamous relationships aren't even necessarily in the in the Christian fundamentalist circles based on, you know, intimacy. Uh, like, emotional intimacy, it's more about the, the system and... and you know, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more. So like, for instance, the one man and one woman till death do us part doesn't say anything about how they relate, right? It reflects a belief system that emphasizes patriarchy and the preservation of the male dominant role, not necessarily emotional connection. So it's not necessarily about intimacy, so it's not really fair to say that alternative relationships are incapable of intimacy because that's saying that monogamous relationships are all about intimacy, which is not necessarily the case. The idea that non-monogamy conflicts with having mature, intimate relationship is rooted in mononormative psychology and the Freudian idea that mature eroticism should be directed towards a single object. So I'm going to read another quote, uh, page 61 of Designer Relationships. Uh, this is by Shervin Loris, MS, LCPC, and LPC. She writes, I am bisexual, polyamorous, happily married, and dating several other partners. My marriage has been open from the beginning with a goal to pay attention and communicate openly with each other. Living and loving this way allows me the freedom to be exactly who I am and to connect with all of my partners from that authentic place. There's my magic word, authenticity. It's so true. And I think that people, again, if you think that you're doing this because something's wrong with your relationship, you're missing the point that some people have a capacity to love more than other people 
And having more than one person to love does not take away from that. Um, there's no scientific basis for these notions. Freud's findings were anecdotal rather than based on data. So that's something to consider. There's research on swingers. Um, and the research says that they value their marriages and the companionship it, pro it provides. They feel that being in the LS or in the swinging community has improved their relationships, which I can attest to that. So many of my friends are just, I mean, the amount of healthy, beautiful, committed, intimate relationships that I see among my friends is just incredible. Um, way more than in the monogamous world that I was in for years, right? So only 1.7% believe that it was damaging to their relationship. So when they surveyed people, um, there was only 1.7 that believed that was, and, and usually that's because there's a lot of sort of mononormative myths, like from last week, some relational myths that we attach to and have trouble breaking away from in order to be able to have actual healthy relationships, which can be applied to all different relationships. So that's important to note. 49% of those who were happy in their relationships prior found that their decision to swing was beneficial to their relationships. So that's important to notice. Uh, LSers see their lives as happier and more exciting than the general public. And I will definitely put my hand up and say that is absolutely true. It is such a wonderful community and it is so much fun. And again, it's not about the sex necessarily. It's just about being authentic and being yourself and being free. And it's just, it's so much fun to be with people who, it's like you get to enjoy feeling young and, and, and being who you are in your completeness all over again without, you know, someone telling you that that's not okay, that's not okay. So it's pretty cool as an adult to kind of move past the, you know, the the peer pressures or the, the dialogues that you hear inside of what people are saying and their judgments, you can move past that. It's it, That's pretty cool. So there's no evidence to suggest that swinging is associated with relationship unhappiness. I hope that you, you got that from that. Um, so those in ethically non-monogamous relationships seem to be happier than their peers in monogamous relationships. It's not across the board, but it is not the opposite. It's not the misconception. Swingers describe their sexual adventures within the lifestyle have increased their emotional connection. And that is absolutely true because you talk about things in a way that you never would before because you are sharing and exploring and you're doing something together. I talk about novelty. Well, here's a here's something that keeps your relationship novel and exciting and something you can keep talking about and grow together in. So why? Um, does it, does it create this emotional connection? Like I just alluded to that, but conversations that are open, honest, and transparent about outside sexual encounters can provide an amazing opportunity to deepen your connection. It's really, really true. So misconception number four, cheating and consensual non-monogamy are similar. If you believe that there are only two options, 
exclusive exclusivity or cheating as presented in our culture, you will struggle to see any other possibility. So we could see how that mis- misconception comes about. The rate of cheating is around 40% for college students who are supposedly monogamous. Infidelity is a big factor in divorce. In a 1983 study, it showed that 50% of divorced people stated that their spouse had been unfaithful. Ethical non-monogamy monogamists who are willing to talk about their desires and sexual interests are less likely to conceal their activities from their partners. I mean, it just makes sense. Also, if you're a swinger and your partner's there with you, it's hard to conceal that activity because they're right there watching. So there's less secrecy needed because it's something you're doing together, especially in the swinging community. That is really big thing. Open relationships tend to be a little bit more separate, but swinging typically, most people do it together. Cheating happens in ethical non-monogamy as well. But because of the honest, open nature of ethical non-monogamy, it is much less likely to happen. But it, do- it can happen, and it's the same. Like, if you're not open and honest, and you do something without the consent of your partner, that's cheating. Whether you're consensually non-monogamous or not. So the idea that, that consensual non-monogamy and cheating are similar is rooted in that idea that a relationship is proprietary and only between two people and it can't be between more than two so that belief says that if you're doing anything with someone else then that's obviously cheating even if it's consensual because we don't have room for that mentality the concept of loving more than one at a time is baffling to most when was the last time you were shamed for having more than one child i often ask this to people you know like did you think Oh, I can't. I have one child and I love them. There's no way I could have another child because I can't possibly love more than one person at a time. I'm going to, you know, the love for my first child is going to lessen because of my second child. We don't think like that, but for some reason we've applied that logic to relationships. So I want to challenge that. So think about that a little bit. Okay, misconception number five designer relationships perpetuate male dominance at the expense of women. Well, designer relationships are literally about each person having what they would like and desire equally as opposed to just the man. So that's not really true. Those who support monogamy are literally rooted in a a patriarchal system which promotes ownership and the authority of men often the women are taught to be submissive like i was so that is more promoting male dominance at the expense of women than non-monogamy is where everyone is free to have what they would like men and women equally Um, men are the head of the home and women are the neck again that's what i was taught polygyny is the form of polygamy that is rooted in patriarchy. But ethical non-monogamy and designer relationships are not at all promoting men having multiple wives. That's not what it's talking about. In the swinger world, you'll often hear it said that the women are in charge in this world. They're in charge, at least in the sexual aspects of what happens. 
And that is really nice. Women are respected and they're safe. Um, I've often said to my daughters, I would feel more comfortable with with them going to a swinger slash sex club rather than a regular nightclub because the women are treated with respect and I wouldn't be worried about them being taken advantage of. So that's not what people would think. Men who disrespect women in this world do not last long. They're booted. They're not allowed back in the club. Single men who don't respect women are not allowed at the clubs. You kind of have to be vetted if you're allowed in. So yeah, it is a much... um much less patriarchal system. Men don't think they just have a right to you. That's not what it's like at all. Uh, polygyny has no doubt oppressed women uh, in the past and promoted male dominance, men with multiple wives. But the same can be said for traditional monogamous marriage throughout history, right? I mentioned that. The modern stereotypes about women's sexuality continue to promote the male as having the sexual authority in the relationship. I remember being taught that I should never say no to my husband when it came to sex. You know, as recently as 2008, marriage equality opponent Phyllis Schlafly, 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 sorry, Marriage equality opponent Phyllis Schlafly argued against treating marital rape as a crime because, as she put it, quote, unquote, I think that when you get married, you have consented to sex, end quote. This mentality is definitely harmful to women. Like, just believing that you've consented so they can just take advantage of you at any point that is that's harmful to a relationship because when you think you have rights like that it it means you don't communicate anymore and you're not talking about each other and what each other wants and and consenting and respecting that level of consent um and so it's a lot more respectful sort of the etiquette of the non-monogamy world designer relationships and ethical non-monogamy are founded on egalitarianism, mutuality, and consent, which is in stark contrast to older patriarchal models. So they can't really say that. In a 2012 general social survey aimed to gather data on contemporary American society to study trends, um, they found that the polyamorous group reported better health, greater general happiness, and were far more likely to have had an HIV test than the general public. Studies about polyamorous relationships found that women were more satisfied with this arrangement than men in actuality since it equalized their relationships. It was a small percentage difference, but just goes to show, it just goes to show that it's not about the alpha male getting to collect his females and asserting his dominance as it's often believed to be. So that's a misconception I really want to knock out of the park. Designer relationships are a step forward for women and for gender equality, not the other way around. So definitely misconception. Misconception number six, monogamy is better for children. This is interesting. Have you ever heard it takes a village when it comes to child rearing? We've all heard that. We're in 
a society that seems to think that childhood is about living a fairy tale. And we've forgotten this whole, like, it takes a village to raise a child. And the idea that someone would put their marriage first is appalling and, and regarded with much judgment. Um, uh, Senator Marco Rubio claimed that thousands of years of human history have shown that the ideal setting for children to grow up is with a mother and father. Well, many use this argument to invalidate ethical non-monogamy and say it's harmful to children. However, this argument's actually nonsense. Hi human history has shown us no such thing about that. Children have grown up in a wide variety of circumstances, and there's no way to say what is totally ideal, okay? In the past, families lived close together, and extended family was heavily involved in the rearing of children. It takes a village. Many children in the past had nannies, commonly. Um, many adults. There were many adults involved in a child's life. And this adds to the sharing of responsibilities and allows children to have more of their needs met. So how can that be wrong? Um, the key is having a healthy relationship environment. That's really important to children's proper development. Some research suggests that Children from single parent or broken homes generally fare less well than those raised in more stable environments. But this could be more due to the economics than the family structure, per se. Um, so wealthy people can often afford help to raise the children and there are more resources available to them. So, you know, that's a factor that we're not thinking about. One mother and one father cannot necessarily provide enough attention for children it's a full-time job. So having multiple people involved in relationships often provides a very loving, stable environment for children where they have more support than just having two parents. So to say that, you know, just one mother and one father is, is the ideal situation. Well, it wasn't like that historically even. Like we, we always have been communal tribal people that have had people there. And we're very much an isolated monogamous society now where it's like <laughs> the responsibility is only one one mother and one father and that is hard and that does not necessarily meet the needs of the children so it's not really a fair assessment um and it's not fair to judge especially when there's research to support the children raised in a home with two mothers often fare better better so to say that a mother and a father is the best situation isn't necessarily true according to the data. So just be careful with those generalizations and, you know, realize those misconceptions are out there, um, but it's not necessarily true. So misconception number seven is people in non-monogamous relationships have a higher rate of separation and divorce. Our culture has such an ingrained belief that monogamy is the only healthy structure for a relationship that it is almost universally assumed that non-monogamous relationships are inherently troubled and that the decision to open up is because there was a serious problem. Well, there's no solid evidence to support this. A study of swingers in 2000 said that 78.5% described themselves as being very happy in their marriages. 
And that was as early as 2000 when it, this wasn't even that common. Um, in the general population, only 64% would say that, you know. So here's a, another quote. Um 62.6% of swingers found that swinging improved their marriages slash relationships. 35.6% said their relationships stayed about the same. And only 1.7% said they became less happy. Even among those who said their marriages were very happy prior to swinging, nearly half, 49.7%, said they became even happier. Among those with the most unhappy marriages, 90.4% said their relationship became happier after swinging. It appears that, at least among the sample of swingers used in this research, swinging tends to improve the perceived quality of the couple's marriages, regardless of how satisfying it was before swinging. So that counteracts the misconception. Um... So if they're happier in their relationships after they're swinging, then obviously it's not causing more divorce, right? That's not, that's not a, a true assessment. Um, as we'll see next, focusing on divorce or breakup as a failure is, is a mistake. So if we're looking, if that's the, the judgment, I, I have a problem with that. A lot of people have a problem with that because isn't it more helpful to judge it based on happiness and satisfaction in relationships instead? Ethically non-monogamous people realize that not just one person is going to make them happy, and therefore adding other people to their relationships is not a threat, but it, it's an advantage. And it, it takes away the pressure of needing to be everything for someone um, or for your relationship to somehow be perfect. That's a lot of pressure, you know? And so a lot of times in the monogamous world, like if your relationship is not perfect or if your spouse isn't me meeting all your needs, then you have to get divorced because there's no way to enjoy or have your needs met in other ways in that structure. So the only, the only solution is separation or divorce. But that's not the case in consensual non-monogamy. You don't need your relationship to be your main source of fulfillment in order for you to stay together. So that's not that's not at all how our culture sees monogamy, you know, if you're not happy then you need to get divorced, but that's that's not what you see in ethical non-monogamy. So that is a misconception. I think the last one is misconception number 8. The end of a relationship represents a failure. So we just alluded to that, it's actually not a really great way to decide if, if things are working or not, or if it's beneficial. Um, but even this idea that relationships that don't work are a failure, um, you're missing a lot of, of things from that. I love Glennon Doyle. Um, and she compares relationships to like perennial and annual plants. One is not less valid than the other. They're both beautiful and they can be enjoyed equally. When the annual plant dies, we don't call it a failure. 
In fact, when the plant dies, it feeds, it fertilizes, and strengthens the soil so that other plants can grow stronger. All relationships serve a purpose, and sometimes they are to be enjoyed for a time to teach us and help us grow, and other times they last for many years. Neither is better than the other or more valid than the others, but we have this belief that it is a failure. And I mean, that was probably the hardest thing for me to come to terms with is that when I separated, that that wasn't a failure. It was actually so brave of me to realize what it is that I wanted and to release someone who didn't want those same things instead of just like butting our heads and and trying to force each other to want the same things. Like that's not a healthy thing. So when we build connections rather than attachments, we're enriched by each beautiful connection, whether it lasts forever or not. So we see that uh, connections are rich and valuable but attachments can be really painful because sometimes our attachments are are based on wounds, right? Like if I'm attaching myself to someone, that's sort of an unhealthy way. I can feel connected and blessed and, and incredibly close to someone without being desperately attached to them. So it's important to look at that as well. Um, my marriage, like I said, was a great marriage for me to grow and become the person I am today. I was 22 when I got married. And we were able to consciously uncouple when we separated. The hardest part was that society and my upbringing was telling me that that was a failure, like I said before. But giving the kids two healthy, thriving parents is definitely not a failure. It doesn't mean that either of us is less valuable because we decided that we were better as co parents than we are as a couple who want completely different things out of life, right? So that's okay. And when we start to say, oh, what we're calling a failure isn't necessarily a failure, then we change this misconception. Society often sees the opposite of love as hate, which leads to often very messy, unhealthy divorces, which is very sad, Uh, Designer relationships stresses a more conscious approach to all aspects of relationships, even the ending of one, which definitely is a benefit, right? We hold on to the notion that marriage has to be forever. Therefore, we have to stay in an unhealthy situation at all costs. Well, it's actually an empowering way to live, to be able to redesign your relationship to suit all the people that are involved rather than simply listening to outside rules that dictate what is actually best for you and your spouse. You get to choose, right? Ethical ethical non-monogamy relationships are more tolerant of change. Therefore, change doesn't need to mean failure. So again, it's a misconception. It can be treated as a shift, whether children are involved or not. There's more of a chance of remaining friends with a former sexual partner in this model. Often, uh, swinger friends become friends for life, even if you don't play with them anymore. So you might play with them for a time, and then you, you find that the sexual chemistry isn't 
great, but you love them as people and you get along and you're friends for life. Like that's the kind of deep relationship. There's a, you're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to restructure things. And I love that. It's so beautiful to not have to put limits on friendships and relationships because of what we are told is right. It just opens up a whole new world. It's a much more authentic way to live. And children learn to honor themselves and make healthy choices for themselves when healthy self-love is modeled all around them. My kids enjoy the love that they have from our other partners now. They often reach out to my boyfriend for things as he lives in the same city as them. Um, They know that they're loved and that he has their best interest at heart and that he'll be there to support them whenever they need. They know that they have other people in their lives that love them. You know, it's really important. Their father's grateful for this as we live a couple hours away from them and he can't provide this kind of support. It's a win-win for everybody if it's done in a healthy way. So it is a misconception. Um, And I think that, you know, it's important to just look at all the sides of things and, and really weigh everything. So there are benefits to ethical non monogamy Um, it's not this big scary thing that our culture presents it as like, Ooh, watch out, watch out. You're going to ruin everything. It's not true. If you do it in a healthy way, if you know what you're getting into, if you understand the basics of, of an empowered relationship and how to communicate and how to create safety and how to feel connected with your partner, those are all things that I talk about with my clients that I really want to make sure that they have this really healthy base of a relationship and that they are very clear on what each other wants and what is consensual on both sides of the equation before they would ever venture into ethical non-monogamy because I don't want people coming into this world that don't understand it because that's not that's not healthy either and that spreads misconceptions even more so um The benefits of ethical non-monogamy, there was another study done in 2020, so a very recent study conducted by Western University, York University, and the University of Utah. They actually found that people with consensually non-monogamous connections had increased life satisfaction, relationship quality, and sexual contentment. So I'm going to leave you with that because I think that uh, it's a good place to stop. And that was a lot. But there is such beauty to ethical non-monogamy when it's done right. And it's about connections. It's not about unhealthy attachments. And when we understand that, everything looks different. When a monogamous relationship is about connection, and not unhealthy attachments, it's a beautiful thing as well. We don't have to do things all one way. We have the ability to make choices, and I want everyone to be able to live authentically, live their own truth, not based on what other people say is right or wrong, but based on what your personal desires are with your partner And you can come up with a plan that works for both of you when you understand the ins and outs, the misconceptions, the myths, all these things. We can make educated decisions that are healthy 
for our relationships that are healthy for our kids, that are healthy for our community and healthy for our society. So I'm going to leave you with that. I love you all. Please go visit my website. Look in the show notes for all the links and you'll get all the links in the next bit. But come join my community. I would love to have you there. It's uh, breaking free authentically or breaking free to be authentically me. And I really want this oasis of vulnerability and authenticity to be a place where we can talk about these things. We can have these discussions. Uh, it's a safe place. It's private. No one can see that you're in that group. So come join us. I would love to have you subscribe to our mailing list. You'll hear all that again. So remember, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. I love you. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you next week. Mwah! Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Kareen Bedard Coaching, and you can visit my website at kareenbedard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give it a like and share it with your friends. I'd be so grateful if you could help by giving us a five-star review on Podchaser or iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list to be kept up to date about upcoming episodes and exciting news. Just visit our website at breakingfreeauthentically.com and scroll down to subscribe. You can also email me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Send your messages and questions to kareen at kareenbedard.com. Are you a part of my Facebook community yet? Join us in Breaking Free Authentically. It's where you will find this sex-positive relationship community. I'd be thrilled to have you be a part of this community with me. All the links will be in the show notes, so don't forget to check it out. Remember, when it comes to sex positivity, authenticity is the key. Have a great week.